Good morning. Uh, my name is Ed, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway. And welcome. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad to have you. We're in, a, in the middle of a series of messages we're calling The Good Life. And I'm convinced that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in his most famous sermon recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount because of where he delivered the sermon. We started two weeks ago and we found out the surprising truth that sometimes we don't get it right about who has the good life. And Jesus convinced us that the good life, really surprisingly, the good life is those people who are near the kingdom of God. When he used the phrase kingdom of God, if you've been here, you'll remember. What he means by that is God controls my life. I have given the governorship of my heart and my life over to him. He directs, I don't. And when Jesus said, listen, when, and he was speaking, remember he was speaking to a bunch of outcasts. And he looks at him, he says, hey, when you're poor in spirit, when you're meek, when you're in the middle and you have to be a peacemaker, when you're persecuted, blessed are you. Happier you. You're in the right place because the kingdom of God is at your elbow. God is available to you. Comfort is available to you. Mercy is available to you. And then last week we said, look, when we think about the good life, it's not just superficiality. All right, granted. Sometimes when we think the good life, we think the, the nice car and the house. But, but really, in our heart of hearts, we know it's more than that. When we think about the good life, we think of being a good person. And this is the second thing that Jesus addresses in his sermon. Like many of the Greek philosophers before him, Jesus talked about what it means to be a good person, what that looks like. And we looked at Matthew chapter 5, and we said Jesus kind of flips it on its head. He says this being a good person, which he called, just like Plato before him, Jesus called it righteousness rightly connected to God, living the right kind of life. And Jesus said, righteousness is an inside job. Weirdly, you don't be a good person by trying to do good things. That approach never works, it never has, and it's not going to. What you do is, Jesus says, you look inside. You allow God to change you from the inside out, and then you become the kind of person who does good things. At the end of that section in Matthew chapter 5, he covers, in the last two paragraphs, he covers, I, I told you it was a little different from the first paragraphs that we went over last week, he covers what is maybe the main giddy-up in this sermon. Two weeks ago, I mentioned that this sermon is one of the most praised and one of the most reviled sermons ever delivered. This section is like the highlight of that. There are people who have applauded this section of Scripture, and there are other people who have hated and reviled this section of Scripture. What we get in this section of Scripture is Jesus' primary ethic, the, the primary driving force behind what Jesus thinks makes a good person. All right, pause. Now, any calculation of the good life has to include love, right? We love love. And if we really think about the good life, we think it's got to include love. Universally, we would agree with that. So would Jesus. But just like most other topics, he's going to turn this on its head a little bit. 
And if we gave a title to what we're going to talk about today, we would call it Beyond Fairness. So Jesus is going to take us to a fascinating place, and I want to explain this to us so it'll give us some walking away stuff to work with this week. I'm going to be reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. It's an awesome section of scripture. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look with me. Matthew 5, 38 through 48. If you don't have a Bible, if you go to your browser on your phone and type in mygateway.life, there's a sermon card and you can look there and the scripture will be there. So Matthew 5, 38 through 48. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, I want you to understand a couple of things about this. You're going to hear in a minute as we explain this, this is not some harsh, cruel uh, statement. This is actually a quote from the Old Testament. And this is a profound ethical adjustment, a profound ethical improvement over the general ethics of the ancient Near East. The other thing I want you to know about this from the very beginning, you're going to see this as we walk through this this morning, the second paragraph in this section explains the first paragraph. So the first paragraph gives us kind of an application of the second paragraph. Okay, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now here's the heart of what people have objected to over the centuries. Many people have, I believe, wrongly read this as a defense of like national pacifism. In fact, Mahatma Gandhi, this was a significant part of what influenced his movement, his nonviolent movement in India, declaring Indian independence peacefully and nonviolently from the British government. He was not a Christian, but he admired Jesus greatly. Now he begins to give us examples. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, we'll explain this in a minute, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the kind of person he is. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, bless this to our hearts and break open our chests and massage your truth then. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You've heard that it was said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Listen, Old Testament scholars and theologians, they'll talk about the law, like in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They divide it up into the moral code and the civil code. And the moral code are things like the Ten Commandments, which are universally applicable across all time and all places. The civil code was inspired by God, written through Moses, and the principles behind it still apply to us. But in some of its particulars, we don't read it the same way because it was written primarily to guard 
the nation of Israel in their relationships with one another, the civil code. So this section right here, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, comes from the civil code of the Old Testament. It's from Exodus chapter 21. And there's a long section in Exodus chapter 21 that deals with personal injuries. So things like someone's cart falls on your oxen or someone hurts your daughter or someone hurts your son or someone kills one of your animals. What should happen in response? That part of the civil code is written to address personal injury. And this is what Jesus is using here as his launching point to talk about the ethic of love. Let me give you another little piece of background information. Some of you have heard this language before, but the, the ancient Near East, back in ancient times and still today, is an honor-shame culture. Uh, some of you have come from primarily honor-shame cultures, some parts of Africa, most of Asia, India, most of India, and most of the Near East would be honor-shame cultures. You know, the thinking about things like this in particular, the thinking is, is a little different than the way you and I think I'm going to give you just a little survey of honor shame. I looked up an article on honor shame culture. It was written by a person who's done business for many years in Central Asia. And he outlines five things that will give you the feel of an honor shame culture. One, family defines everything in collectivistic societies. He says identity is determined by the group you belong to. For you and I, our identity is determined by where we live or what we do for a living. So when we meet someone at a party, hey, how are you? Good. You know, nice weather we're having. Yes, what do you do? But in honor-shame cultures, hey, how are you? It's nice weather we're having. Who are you? Who are your people? Secondly, social capital fixes anything. In other words, it's who you know to the extreme. Third, and this is the one that you need to really remember, aggression restores honor. Honor is the supreme value, so any threat to one's honor must be vigorously addressed. A fourth th words define status. You know, they have different parts. And some of you come from language uh, cultures where you have different language. You have different ways to address different people in the culture. For, uh, fifth, food conveys honor. The people you eat with define both your honor and your identity. So honor is the prevailing value throughout the history of the culture of the Bible including in the time of Jesus, and it still is today in the Near East. So in the cases of personal injury, honor must be restored. So this involves more than the appropriate price being paid. Again, honor must be restored. So if you break my son's leg, I'm going to find your son and break his leg and both of his arms. Because it has to be paid for and honor must be restored. If you kill my son, I'm going to come to your village and kill your whole family. If you kill my family, I'm going to kill your village. Because honor must be restored. And you can see how this creates a cycle of revenge and retaliation that dominated the ancient world. So the Old Testament civil law was an amazing God-inspired enhancement, advancement, a guard against the re retaliation revenge cycle. The prevailing value found in the Old Testament civil law was equality. In the case of personal injury, all parties should be treated fairly. There should be an equal exchange. An eye is taken, an eye should be taken. Not the whole head. A foot is taken 
A foot should be taken. A tooth is taken. A tooth must be removed. That's the background for Jesus' teaching here. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Fair enough so far. But I tell you, wait, what's he going to say now? And no one could have expected this. Do not resist the evil person. This was not only a radical departure from the honor dynamic of revenge retaliation. Jesus was even pushing beyond fairness here. Way beyond fairness. Why? I mean, fairness makes sense, right? It's, it's fair. What is Jesus doing? It helps to understand that the second paragraph again explains the first. You see, Jesus is establishing a new ethical guide. The prevailing value, according to Jesus, is not honor. It's not even fairness. The prevailing ethical value is love. And do not resist is an important application of that value of love. So then he gives four specific examples, right? Cheek and give to the one in need. But the two side notes real quick before we look at those examples. First, I want you to remember that these examples are meant to address personal injury. If you read the examples and if you read the Old Testament context on which they're obviously based, this becomes absolutely clear. Personal injury. As I said, over the centuries, people have built a theology of pacifism based on this teaching. They've they've used this teaching to argue that countries should not prosecute war under any circumstances, but they should turn the other cheek. But this is not Jesus' intent here. He's focused on you and me. This is far more personal as individuals and how we respond as people of the kingdom of God, as citizens of the kingdom. This is about how each of us responds to personal injury. Second side note, the examples Jesus gives are not laws. They're examples. Jesus is not proscribing behavior. He never does that. Jesus never gives you a list of do this, but don't do this. That's never his intent. He knows that doesn't work. Righteousness is an inside job. Jesus is illustrating the kinds of things that we will do as we more and more embrace our citizenship in God's kingdom. These are examples, not laws. So here you go. Example number one, when you sustain direct personal injury because of someone else, how do people like us respond? Well, you and I continue to be vulnerable and open. We will turn the other cheek. We will not be dominated by this injury. The hurt and the disappointment that we've experienced will not define us. Or our relationship. Now, look, people always bring up hypotheticals about this. I guess an attempt to disprove this. You've heard them before. Let me just give you one. What about the woman who's being abused? Should she turn the other cheek? Well, first of all, let's remember that turn the other cheek is not a new law. It's an example. And it's not meant to cover every situation. So let's not burden these examples by searching for the exception that you think disproves the point. These are examples. Second thing to note is that God is not calling us to turn someone else's cheek. The call to be vulnerable is on us. So you can't decide about the woman being abused, and you don't need to, unless you are the woman being abused. And if that's your case, All any of us can do is give you general principles and pray for you, encourage you and support you as you seek out what God's call is and what God's will is for you. I can tell you that the ethic of love should prevent you from retaliation in any sort. That's not the kind of person God is making you into. 
But the ethic of love would not compel you to put your life or the life of your children at risk. And in your case, turning the other cheek might actually include a restraining order. That's not meant to be punitive. That's not what we do, but it's meant to give the relationship a glimmer of hope by creating space. Okay, on to the examples. Two, if someone tries to sue you for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. It sounds crazy, Jesus. This seems to be specifically addressing court cases. So one author has summarized it like this. Kingdom people will conscientiously try to help, as is appropriate, those who have won legal cases against them in court. You can ask our friend Rob, who's a lawyer, how unusual this is. In other words, even when there is contention in the relationship, kingdom people will be deeply interested in the other person and will be prepared to help them as much as they can. Third example. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. So here's what you need to know about this example. Soldiers and government officials in Palestine during this time had the right, by law and by custom, to ask travelers to give them a ride or assist them in their travels for one mile. You can understand how people in general might have felt about this. But the kingdom people will treat such situations generously and they will not feel put upon. In fact, they will take up the concerns of the official as if they were their own concerns. Fourth example, give to him who asks of you. Kingdom people will try to meet the needs of those around them. Kingdom people will not turn away the needy. In short, do not resist an evil person. Don't fall back on the retaliation revenge cycle. Don't even try to even things up by exacting the right punishment. Instead, be helpful to your offender if you can. I talked to my wife Diane yesterday about this. And Diane said, occasionally asked me this, how's it going? How's it going to be tomorrow? So I said, ah, which is not the way you want to think about coming in on Sunday morning. And, you know, it's pretty straightforward, but it's good. It's pretty good. But it's not too exciting. And she said, yeah, but it's really hard. But tell me more. When someone hurts you, this is really hard to do. When someone hurts your kid, think about the coach who's extremely dismissive of your kid. It's hard to do this. Think about the mean girl who mistreats your kid and their parent. This is really hard to do. And I said, wow, you're right. And she said, I think you can only do it with God's help. And I said, would you mind preaching tomorrow? Of course she's right. We have to ask for God's help. We don't have a shot at living the good life. We don't have a shot of living out what real love looks like without God's help. So as we said, the second paragraph explains the first. The second gives us the ethical principle behind the non-resistance. So I'm going to read that second paragraph again. Matthew 5, and this is the second paragraph. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. You may be children of the Father. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Look, if you do that, you're just like the pagans. You're no different. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the first paragraph was the negative command. Don't resist an evil person. The second paragraph is a positive command. Love your enemies and seek their good. We are the kind of people who do that. 
We are becoming kingdom people more and more day by day, clearer and clearer, and we will go beyond patience and forbearance to service and love. We will go beyond the refusal to retaliate, beyond even fairness, to overcoming evil with good and to loving others. I like the way Alfred Plummer summarized it. He said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. Now, if you're familiar with this sermon, you know that throughout it, Jesus draws this stark contrast between conventional wisdom and kingdom living. On the one hand is the weight of secular culture and convention and the opinions of your neighbors. On the other side is Christian thinking and kingdom values and the opinion of God. And Jesus seems to be suggesting that this notion of retaliation is deeply ingrained in conventional thinking. This is driving us. Even if we move away from the honor, shame, revenge, retaliation, even if we adopt a fairness model, we're operating on the basis of payback, both toward good and evil. Do you see that? The retaliation of evil with evil, that's obvious. But we also do it with good, Jesus says. We repay good with good. Jesus points this out in the second paragraph. He says, love those who love you. Greet only your brothers. Everyone does that. In other words, scratch my back. I'll scratch yours, of course. This isn't how kingdom people operate. This isn't the good life. It may feel like we're protecting our good life. This is what we've been led to believe. But Jesus disagrees. I want you to see a video real quick that's just a pictorial explanation of this. He's going to talk in this video about the moral circle. I like that language, but we're going to, or the ethical circle, we're going to call it the circle of love for our purposes. Watch this video. Let's just say this is you. You're the big red person. All these people around you are just the people that you come in contact with. Some are people that you're friends with. Some are just, you know, the the checkout person at the grocery store. Everyone has a moral circle. And all that means is that the people that are most central to you there are going to get your most love and are the people that you're going to be nicest towards. Okay. How many of you here have waited tables? So you guys know what misery that is. I have waited tables also. Imagine a friend, a family member, somebody you really care about is going to start waiting tables. They go through the whole training process. You get a group of people together. You go, you sit in their section. You're all excited first night. And they come over and they are just sweating bullets. Right? What do you say to them? Oh, don't don't worry about us. Don't worry about us. Don't even worry about We don't even need drinks. I don't even like water. It's fine. We're fine. I don't even like this. An hour later, they come over and take your order. You ordered steak in front of you as cod. It's great. You love cod. Cod's terrific. We're going to eat this. This is going to be great. And then what do you do at the the end of the night? You over-tip them, don't you? You over-tip them. Now, imagine that same scenario, and you have no idea who this server is. And they come, and you know what? You ordered Coke Zero, and this tastes like Diet Coke. So you stop making eye contact with these people, you start to do that mental math of the tip going down, down, down. I'm not gonna even look at this person. You know, this is, this is ridiculous. We were paying for a good time, what is this? Two different types of behavior from us for two different people. One is your mom, one is your friend, one is your brother, the other one isn't. But the other one's somebody's mom, the other one's somebody's friend, the other one's somebody's brother. Why do we justify two different types of behavior for people that we come in contact with? We show kindness 
to our kind, meaning the people that are inside that circle are generally going to be people that you think are your kind. Ethnicity, background, financial status, age, orientation, family member, skill set, you name it. These are the people that I am going to give my most love to. Just imagine with me, how different would your world be if you just expanded your moral circle? What if all of a sudden the people in your church were known for treating other people in their society like family? What would that do to you? What would that do to your church? What would that do to your life and your heart? So what would it do? The good life without question includes love. We all readily agree with that. That's universally accepted. We even celebrate it. But here, where there is universal agreement, Jesus still stretches us. He challenges us to radically expand our circle of love if we truly want to live the good life. First, he repudiates the retaliation culture. That's not the kind of people we are becoming. Then he encourages us to expand our circle to eliminate categories. For good life people, there's no longer my kind and not my kind. All kinds are my kind. For good life people, different ethnicities, of course. Different cultures, certainly. Different lifestyles, yes. People who love us, gladly. People who injure us, just as certainly. People who serve us, you know it. People who take advantage of us, yes. Sweet girls, my kind. Mean girls, my kind also. Our relationship toward all those categories of people is governed by love. That doesn't mean our relationships with all of those categories is the same. It can't be. But we extend love toward all. Okay, again, I don't have time to finish up everything that we were going to do. Part of what I want to do is two things left, and I'll try to come back to this if we have time. But I want to tease this so that you have time to think about it. You and I no longer live in an honor-shame culture. We live in a personal liberty culture. We have personal property. We value our personal space. We wrote it into our documents, the pursuit of life, that mean, by which we mean my life, liberty, by which we mean personal liberty, and the pursuit of my personal happiness. We are a personal liberty culture. And in that personal liberty culture, what do we do when we are faced with personal injury to us? I think what we do, you can think about this later, but I think what we do is we try to be tolerant. We try to understand, it's probably your background, that's why you did that. And then we set up proper boundaries to protect ourselves and to separate ourselves from that person so that we don't get injured again. And I think Jesus speaks into that in part saying, phooey on your personal space. I'm not into your personal space, I'm into you doing relationship, that's the preeminent priority, love, is the supreme value. And tolerance, which is, by the way, I think a Jesus value. You look at cultures that have not been influenced by Jesus, they're not very tolerant. But tolerance is not the supreme value. Love is. And sometimes love speaks the truth. And sometimes love says, you hurt me. What is up with that? We need to deal with this. Stop. Right? Because we are people whose preeminent value is love. Sometimes we absorb and forgive. 
Sometimes we press in and speak the truth, and it's always in the service of love, always toward relationship. The last comment that we have to make about this passage that I want you to think about later is what in the world does Jesus mean when he says you must be perfect? John Mellell reminded me the other day that, you know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, one time said, if Jesus meant that the way we often understand it, he was meaner than Moses. He's not setting up some standard for you to jump over. This is not a schoolmaster saying, and what do you have to be, boys and girls? Perfect. This is a coach giving the pregame speech. You got this. The kingdom of God is at your elbow. You can do this. Be perfect. Let's pray. Father, stir our hearts. You are calling us to love in a way that beyond us. There are people right now in many of our lives who are uh, difficult, irritating, painful, disappointing. And you are calling us to move toward them in love. And we hear you. So this Thursday, when we are tempted to say, we don't like it, you remind us this morning, we said, we heard you. And we're in. In the strong name of Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may go. Have a great day.